Regular listeners know how I work with guests on this podcast. I do the Spodek method, which is my technique to lead people through evoking, through support and non-judgment, their intrinsic motivations around the environment and leading them to act on those, not telling them what to do, giving them facts and numbers and instruction. It works very well, and I've been leading workshops in it. My, the person I speak to in this episode is Evelyn Wallace. She took the first workshop, and she didn't know what she was getting into. She contacted me, actually, for leadership coaching. It happened to be when I was announcing the first workshop, and she joined it. And she was very nervous when she joined it because she felt like she didn't really know much about sustainability. She felt like everyone else knew more than her. And she really loved the experience. I think everyone in that, in that group loved the experience. So she became the TA for the two sessions that followed. And she's going to become the instructor for the future workshops coming up. We've developed, I've developed a great relationship with everyone who's taken the workshop. In particular with her that we have these conversations that are, I would say, for me, fun, but also because of the support and non-judgment and because we are sharing what we've been going through, they're intimate and we talk about things that are really great. And to me, this is what happens when you share environmental things or your actions with the environment. We decided because we felt the conversations were so enjoyable that it would be useful for people to see what it's like after you've taken serious steps to live more sustainably. Because... I think most people view it from the outside as deprivation and sacrifice and loss of something that they want. Whereas our experience has been liberation and freedom and fun, intimacy and more connection. So we decided that we we're going to have video. Well, what we're planning for in the future is to make video conversations where people live, live streamed, so that people can come on and ask us questions and things like that, something like a radio call-in show. We haven't yet gotten everything set up and so we decided we're just going to do what we can at the beginning. So we recorded a couple of video ones, and I'm going to put the link to those first two video conversations. This one, I don't know, Zoom did something weird, and so there's no video. There's just audio, and I decided I'll post it to the blog. People there can listen to this conversation, hear what it's like for people who are seriously acting on sustainability and loving it and sharing it with each other. And it's a long conversation, but I hope it's engaging and fun. Uh, I'll put the link in the notes to the first video conversations. And hopefully at some point in the future, I'll put in a link when we have the live stuff going on so you can join the conversation, ask us questions, challenge us, uh, just join in and listen. Anyway, so here's me and Evelyn Wallace in an impromptu conversation. You'll hear that we talk about, oh yeah, here's what we talk about. She did a workshop which followed on from the actions because it's project-based learning in these workshops. And she's doing these uh, cooking workshops with this local chef who teaches in a culinary class school. Then I talk about a workshop that I did, my third annual Bronx cooking workshop. Uh, we talk about intimate things about relationships with family, how things change, what we learn about each other. Um, we talk about leadership techniques and style. So enjoy this conversation. I hope you like it. And uh, I hope you also get to, get to see that the other side of the challenges of acting more sustainably, of looking inside oneself and saying, wait, why did I think that this thing that pollutes was so benign and what can I replace it with? Here's me and Evelyn. <laughs> Welcome everyone to me and uh, to Josh Spodek and Evelyn uh, Wallace talking about sustainability things. And you were just saying something before we recorded, but we're going to jump right into it. Um, you held an event last week, two weeks ago, 
in, uh, a week and a half ago in which you were leading a group on sustainability. Now, I have to put this in context for people who aren't aware of this, that less than a year ago when we first met and I suggested you do this workshop, you said, I'm not an expert. I don't know that stuff. I'm the, and then when we started it, people who are no more expert than you, you were like, I'm wait, well, some of them knew a bit, but you were like, I'm catching up. I'm not an expert. How can I help others? Mm-hmm. And now, all right. So I asked you how it went and you wrote back something like with several exclamation points, all caps. <laughs> can you give us some context as to, um, all right, I'll give some context as to what led you to there. So you contacted me, you did the workshop in the spring to learn the Spodic method. Last then year. Over the summer, you TA'd two, the, then you became the TA for two different sections, including professionals who work on sustainability. And, uh, and now you, a, 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 there's a project with each of these things that you worked on a project. So some of it was making food, some of it was um, making videos. And um, last I heard you knew a chef in your area who teaches culinary arts of some sort. You were invited to give a, a talk, a demonstration on sustainability and food. Take it away. Okay, great. Yeah, I do. I mean, just to sort of color in some of the blanks of the, yeah, the past tense, I, I definitely came to this like um, thinking I was reaching out to you about leadership. I was like, great, this guy knows some stuff. I'm a graduate worker in social work, like, I, or, sorry, grad, grad student in social work. And then the sustainability thing was sort of like a surprise, like, oh, I, I guess I can, sure, I'll make that work. I definitely felt like the the black sheep. Um, And what helped me and what might help our listeners out there is that there is no wrong place to start. There is no behind. Wherever you are now, you can do something differently by tomorrow, if you want, when you want, when you choose you want. And and that was um, game changing to me that it's not it's not about the y-intercept. It's about the slope. <laughs> um, so yes, I Wait, explain that explain that you, that was too quick. I knew okay. that but they didn't. Okay. Well, yeah, this was like a tangent. So I'm trying to like not go too far off of tangents. But sure. Yeah, let's do it. If so you're gonna talk geometry and then use the word tangent. I mean, trigonometry <laughs> and then use the word tangent. You're on. Poetic. <laughs> um, let's, right. Let's not run around in circles here. As far as haha. I see what you're doing. I think it's a well sign. Done. Scientist. Um, Dr. Spodak. What does it um, mean the y-intercept and the slope and not the y-intercept? Well, yeah. So I, during our workshop, um, when I was a participant, I remember th- I just, I wasn't, it was nice to be encouraged to ask all the questions. Like I, I didn't feel like I was withholding like how I really felt. And so there was a lot of, I, I felt like I was giving a lot of pushback um, about like all of it, you know, especially the Spodek method. Like what is, I don't get it. <laughs> What's this all about? And I think there was this moment where um, you helped me understand that wherever you're starting is fine. Like wh- wherever you're starting is fine. Whatever you're doing right now, not that whatever, not that our behaviors are all fine, but like you've ne- there is no missing the boat. So it's not so like your y-intercept is in a totally different place. The point on the graph, if you were to graph it out, of like sustainable. Um, behaviors and life habits you your your point on the graph was totally different way like off the charts of where mine would have been and so when i put myself on a graph next to you i felt like well what what's the point like i'm never going to be him so like why try 
And it was really helpful for me to be encouraged where I was to, for you, for you and like your group and your like leadership style to meet me where I was to say that it's not your, like you're on, I was on my own graph and that, okay, so here's where I'm starting. Here's the point at which I'm starting. Here's my behaviors. What are some things? And it what like the things that I thought to change came out of the Spodek method game. Um, it wasn't like, a, it wasn't you guys telling me what to do or what to change. So the first sort of element is, is being open to being willing to change, being open to like looking at what you're doing. And although that's not how, that's not how you get there. That's not how the Spodic method motivates. But um, yeah, I guess it was a relief to me. There was like a relief to know that I haven't failed I have I haven't like I haven't missed the boat just because I'm not Josh. <laughs> now, I want to uh, fill in something else on where the why intercept came in, because okay. part of it is to influence other people, but it's to influence people. The Spodic method is to influence people based on their intrinsic motivations, not extrinsic. And so but you were you kept saying, well, if I'm trying to get them to change, aren't I pushing them? Aren't I trying to change them? And and I kept saying it's not, it, there's a big difference between extrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation. Mm. And I kept trying to say, it's not, what I eventually said that made sense was, it's not the, not the absolute level where they are, it's the y-intercept. Are we getting them to change? So it's if not we get the them to change. It's the angle of right, slope. But at the be so when you're leading people through extrinsic motivation or trying to coerce or cajole or convince them, you may get compliance. You may get them to shift once, right. maybe twice, right. but they're not intrinsically wanting to move. Right. Whereas if you, if you don't move them at all, but you get them to enjoy, to see, to expect that it's going to be joy, freedom, liberation, fun, then not only will they change, also that's going to change. They're going to want to change others because you want to share fun. You know, I don't know everyone who's like, oh, I did this thing that was really annoying. Why don't you do it too? I did this thing that was really freedom giving, you know, maybe connect more with my community that people want to share. And I kept saying all these non-scientific ways and non-mathematical ways, and it never hit. And I was like, I don't care about the y-intercept. I care about the slope. And you're like, that's it. That makes sense. Right. Yeah, I get of course, it. I also care about the second derivative because then you can get acceleration. Right. But right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And that, yeah, the, the movement, it's movement. It's constant. Yeah. It's not a one and done. It's not meatless Mondays. Um, so shall we shift into the yes back um, to you and your event? Okay, so yes, I do have a friend. He's like relatively local. He lives up in Washington. Um, it's yeah, it's not right around the corner, but um, he is a teacher of culinary arts at a um, trade at a high school, a trade school, or um, what do you call it? I think of it like a um, when uh, artists go to conservatory style schools. So I don't know if it's right. conservatory style, but it sounds like that. Yeah, it's like where kids actually have fun and like they get to cook all day, all morning. They have three a three hour um there's a three hour session in the morning and then different kids come in for the afternoon session and they get English, math, and science credits, which is how English, math, and science should be taught <laughs> interactively and with engagement and motivation. Anyway, the kids love it. Like he, the class has gotten rave reviews, like both from the administration and from the kids. I've seen it with my own eyes, like kids approaching him in the street saying, I love your class. I'm shifting my life around so I can take it again. So I knew that I was walking in um, to a group of somewhat receptive, uh, somewhat receptive audience, even though, you know, they're high school kids and they're also kind of trapped. Also, I haven't been a high school kid for a while. So there was, uh, the, you know, the, the culture, um, presumably gap. a high bar 
if he's doing really well and you come in, like they're going to compare you to him. Right. 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 Exactly. Yeah. And the, and the fact that I was even approached in the first place, the fact that he said, oh, I, I like part of what I am supposed to do as the leader of this class is to bring in other guest speakers and you know how to cook this sustainable food. Like I'm going to bill you as a sustainability expert. I was like, uh, okay. At first I wanted to fight him or disagree. At first I wanted to disagree and demure. And then I realized no, like, sure, I do know stuff. I have learned stuff. I do know stuff I can teach because it's been taught to me. Also, I've done my own experimentation and done my own learning. So it was really like a perfect blend of, um, yeah, group learning and also individual learning. And I'm thrilled to share it. Also, I felt competent enough because I had worked with this particular food, not recipe. It's more like a formula. Um, mm-hmm. We've talked about it before. You call your, I mean, I think of it as like your food, like, oh, this is Josh's food, but um, not possessive, but you know, it, you sort of invented or taught or taught us. And so, and you call it your. Well, I call it famous, no packaging, vegan, no uh, solar powered stew. Right. And I always thought, okay, that's really accurate and awesome. And you're right. But like, we really probably need to work on branding. So my first, when I, I, um, I first like hosted a dinner party. Well, I first sort of learned how to cook it myself and realized, oh, this is way too wet or I need more salt or, you know, all of the iterations of mistakes. Um, I hosted a dinner party just for my friends and it was so uplifting and nurturing, like not just physically, but spiritually to be together and break bread. And literally I bought bread, no packaging from a local bakery, um, added it to the, to what I, what I eventually called vegan mash. And you're like, well, that's gross too. (laughs) So, um, I have, yeah, I'm now calling it. And what I called it in this class was, um, veggie hash without the trash. And I bet that. Uh, when you had your friends for dinner, I know that when I bring friends over here, I can feed five people for less than I would pay for myself at a restaurant. Bingo. There's no noise. There's no one trying to rush me out. There's no like how to figure out the tip. Uh, there's no, it's, it's more comfortable. We can, we can spend time. And, but before I knew how to cook and cook really quickly, like they come over and I cook while they're there. That's part of it. Right. And I love- yeah, the demo, the demo was part of it. When I had, when I had the dinner party, some friends, like mm-hmm. some friends were sort of chatting in the back. I was like, <clears throat> quiet in the back. Like this is be- beans to water ratio is important. Or like, oh, I didn't know this is a demo. I was like, how did you not know? I said it in the text. But yeah, it's, it's um, one of the selling points of this amazing food is that. Oh, this lifestyle. Lifestyle. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, but this particular um, manifestation of the lifestyle, the eating mm-hmm. part that. Um, that it is dirt cheap to to buy this food. And yeah. so it really obliterates that myth of like, this is too expensive. Then you start thinking, who told me that? Who told me it was too expensive? Was it the McDonald's mindset? Like, was it like our general overall dominant well, culture I, that wants it, that, bet, that like profits off of us thinking that we can't afford to eat anything other than drive-through? I'm going to, I think part of it is that a lot of people think, what am I supposed to do? And because there's this demand, entrepreneurs come in and like they sell stuff. So they, they won't, there's, you don't have to buy anything new for this to live sustainably. In fact, buy less. Buy but less. if you don't think about it and you just like, well, the market tells me I'm supposed to buy, like I have silverware, but apparently now I'm supposed to buy bamboo silverware too. All right. If that's your idea of sustainability is buying things that are marketed to as green, that's probably gonna be pretty expensive. Right. Uh, but the, the other thing is, and I think, all right, I just did my cooking workshop up in the Bronx. Oh, nice. In, the Bronx, in, this community, in this community garden. And they're doing all the stuff that people, what? Another one? Like recently? 
it was it was originally last weekend, but I just did it two days ago. Oh, cool. Okay. It was postponed for rain uh, one week. Oh, that's right. And people down here tell lecture at me. You don't know what it's like in the Bronx because they can't do this because they don't have what you have. And luckily, no one told them because they're doing what people down here say they can't do. Right. And I think, you know, I try to empathize with people. Why do people say that? Like, why do people say, like, I'm living more sustainably. And then people say, but someone up there can't. Mm -hmm. What does that have to do with anything? Um, I think who did they ask you to, to speak up for them? Yeah. I think what happens in their minds, and this isn't everyone, but I think a lot of them, they think to themselves, I should be living more sustainably because I know that I'm hurting people. So I'm a good person, but I'm doing something I think is bad. How do I reconcile that? And then they think, well, they can't do it. I'm in solidarity with them. Until they can do it, I can't, like I would be, I would be privileged and doing something they can't. Never mind that the people who want to stop polluting are the ones who are polluting the most, who are the rich people, not the poor people. I don't That's know what, no one, no one says, Bill Gates can't do that. Mm-hmm. Bill Gates can't stop flying around in private jets. So you, you should keep, you should fly. It's totally self-serving, specious, fatuous. How can I sleep better at night? They're not consciously thinking that. And it's not And everyone. before we lose our listeners, if, if, if they identify as the people who are saying, but, but what about, but what about, I feel like it's important to know that we like, we live the way we're taught to live. And until we're ready to acknowledge that it's not working, like until we're ready, because I, because I know people live with a deep sense of angst. They tell me, <laughs> they, mm-hmm. they express it. I know that there is this sense of like, things aren't quite working. Like things are on fire. Things are expensive, like too expensive. And I think so much of human behavior is unconscious. It's, it's what we have been, it's what we were taught, like when we were, you know, basically growing up, like when we were in being programmed, when we were little robots being programmed. <laughs> and then we live the programming that, that was put into our system, to our operating system. So I'm not a computer scientist. I don't know if you could tell that. <laughs> but I feel like it takes um, there is something in chemistry, right? It's like startup energy. Like it takes more energy to get it started than it does to keep it going, right? Yeah, it's yeah. um. Uh, and then if you can get a catalyst, you can not have to go over the reaction potential. Catalyst. So you are a catalyst for me, and 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 I think being a social a graduate student in social work, not quite a social worker yet, but um. I was already, I was positioned to do a lot of self-reflection, to do that hard work of looking in the mirror and thinking, eesh, like, I, I don't, it's not like, I don't, I'm not, I don't hate myself, but like, oof, there's like some things there that I really, that I don't like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and instead of, I, I think the most um, common reaction to that, like when someone holds a mirror up to your own behaviors, which is what you're doing when you're saying, oh, I'm teaching a, like a, or no, um, Sorry, you weren't telling people that you were teaching a thing in the Bronx. It's just people's reaction to you somehow out of nowhere is, oh, but I, but they lecture you about people in the Bronx can't afford it. Mm. So, and therefore, and so I think for them that what you're doing is somehow holding a mirror up to them, whether it's like conscious or not, they're seeing it as a mirror, whether it's conscious or not. And instead of acknowledging if they don't like what they see, they throw shit at the mirror <laughs> and they find ways yeah. to. Um, There's a whole chapter in my book. Great. I believe Psychology it. of corruption. Right. And so like I try to operate, like I try to stay anchored to that um, 
compassionate place where, I mean, I know you like to say that Meatless Mondays is sort of like, um, like sober driving Saturdays, <laughs> like mm-hmm. feel free to drive drunk the rest of the time. Cause Hey, at least we're getting better. And like, okay, well that behavior is harmful and it's actually not like, it's not okay to do ever. I think when we have been, when a system has separated us from the harm that our behaviors cause, and when we have grown up being told from the people we trust, from the systems we trust, that this is the way to do it, it's it takes a lot of work, like inner work, to ignore, to 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 overcome that, to switch positions, and so and but I'm also newer at it. Like I haven't I haven't had like the repeated conversations that you've had. I'm sure over the last ten, however many years you've been having the same conversations. I would imagine I'll reach a point where I'm like whew, tapping out, like I can't deal with another like oh fission, I'll save it person. Um, uh, and I, I guess I didn't, I didn't know to expect, and I do want to get to the like food yeah. at there. some point, but oh, I didn't yeah. know to expect that so many of my, um, liberal friends, like I'm a, I'm in a, most of my network is people who identify as liberal. Um, I've done a lot of work to try to like cross bridges into communities that, um, identify differently and like, because I feel like that's an important part is, and I know you've done that too. Um, I, I, it's kind of wild getting to the moment where you, where you realize that we've all been living, not we, like we as a group as, or like when I sort of identified as liberal or like part of that grouping Mm. that like, there's this cloak, right, right. There's this cloak of safety of like, oh, well, we're environmentalists and we, it's like these labels, but there's no action to back it up it's like saying well it's, i'm it's blonde actually, it's actually consistent with they want to show that they care because caring is a very among many things it's not the only thing mm. but liberals caring is a very high value so they want to mm. show my care mm-hmm. so interesting they show compassion to the people suffering that's lovely like if there's an abused child mm-hmm. it's important to show care and, and help the child but you got to stop the abuse. The child is not causing the abuse. You got to stop the abuse. This this is where I feel like um, I'm I'm eager to just to get this MSW and then to go off in the world and do what I know I need to be doing with some letters behind my name, but not necessarily like in line with what social work teaches, because we're training like every I mean, I think about how many people, how many how many graduates, how many new social workers are there just this year who have been taught based on these um, curriculums that we all have, like the approved, you know, competencies that we have to learn. I feel like social work is one of the only disciplines that really does push toward social justice. It says social justice in its sort of tenets. It's it's like underlying philosophy. And yet there's there's all these false assumptions, like, like how, like, how do we best help the abused child? Let's, um, how do we, how do we, you know, how do we get a little more funding for this nonprofit that's going to help abuse children in this way? But no one's asking, how do we stop the abuse? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, yeah, and that's where I feel like. More than that, if I start working with abusers to try to help them stop mm-hmm. abusing, they're like, but look at the children, look at the children, look at the children. I'm like, that's what, what do you think that's I'm doing this for? Do right. Do you think the, ch- the child is, is, is causing? No. How? Back to you and... Thanks, the, the, um, so b- before you did it, were you, you went through this process of being scared to do it and gradually realized you built yourself up or how did, how did you go through the emotional change from, um, 
anxiety to confidence? If that's sure, were yeah, you comfortable good... walking in or were you anxious walking in? Um, that's a that's a good question. I think that I overcame that initial anxiety pretty quickly because I had enough data to support like this anxiety is just um, uh, a reflex. You know, this is like this is this is just what we do. This is what our nervous systems do when they're like approached with new things. This is a growth edge, but rationally. And because I have this like beautiful new sustainability community that meets, that continues to meet on Sunday mornings mm. when I remember that it's Sunday, sometimes I forget. But mm, um, I, I, I came to you guys to say, I have this thing, like who, does anyone have any advice? Like, what should I do? Is this like, okay, okay. And so having the support and um, like validation from my team was really helpful. And role modeling um, from Emily. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's funny when I talked to her. So another um, member of our cohort, Emily, had like jumped into um, hosting these, um, you know, veggie hash without the trash dinners. She didn't call it that. Um, and well, it's not just about the food. It's a sustain. It's a sporadic method training workshop. Right, right. Activating people on sustainability. No, right. Did it sound like I was saying that was the whole thing? It's not just food. It's not just food. Um, Sorry, I thought I turned my phone off. Um, she she had done, yeah, some of these um, dinners. And it's funny because when I talked to her later, she was like, oh, wow, like, I, I really, I need to, um, I need to get my act together. Like, I need to really step up or, you know, she was like, oh, I, I tend to have like a more um, cavalier approach. Like, maybe I should do more planning. I was like, oh, what? oh, interesting. Like, now am I like, I'm motivating you to, <laughs> to jump to even further action. Like, great, we can just... We can just be links in a chain with like no hierarchy. <laughs> you know, it can be this like continual leapfrogging. Like, all right, well done. Everybody wins. Um, so yeah, I had role models. I had like social support. Um, and I had like my own repertoire built up of like experience. I wasn't going in never having cooked this pot of food. I had I had gone in cooking for myself for a while, cooking for other people. Um, and yeah, when I... I I was a little late to the class session. So the kids were like um, a little antsy, but I jumped right in. They, they start in a classroom and then there's like the whole kitchen. It's like a huge professional kitchen. I've, I've worked in restaurants and like, I've never seen such a big kitchen. It's awesome. It's like, it's made to accommodate 30 people, 30 mm -hmm. chefs, which is great. Um, but in the classroom, you know, there's like, a, there's like the, high, there's like the high school um, posture. Huh. <laughs> um, a lot of slouching and like, I, they, I kept them waiting. So that was my bad. Um, but uh, but I started with engagement. Like, hey, how 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 how's everyone feeling about the future? <laughs> hey guys, any what's what's your sense? And it was interesting because, like, as a grown up person who was trying to connect with um, teenage people, um, there were like groups of kids who you could tell were like the you know the talkers or the like the we're we're not paying attention, but we're gonna have our own conversation based on what you're saying. So we're kind of paying attention. And I found a way to engage them. Um, that I had, I had asked people like what their favorite foods are or like what they think about healthy food. Like, you know, and, oh, and I got, so I got them, I, they all, they, they said all the answers. It's too expensive. It takes too much time. Um, and it's yucky. <laughs> I was like, great. Uh -huh. I'm glad that you think all that let's go in the kitchen so we can disprove all, all of those things. And, um, there were, it was interesting because when there's so many kids, it's like there's a lot going on in the in the kitchen. And I do have to say, I was hosting or co co facilitating a community event that I had organized later in the day, and I had hired my friend chef to um, cater to cater it. And one of the one of the privileges of being the person in charge is that, and being friends with the cook, um, is that 
or the person cooking the food, <laughs> don't call don't call a chef a cook. <laughs> um, is that we could work together to make even to make that food as trash free as possible. So it was really beautiful to have like um, these like a multiplicity of opportunities to share this kind of nourishment. And yes, I, sustainability is not just about food, but human eating is one of the big ones. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so um, so like while I while the kids who were extra engaged were sort of uh, circled around like the table that I was at, like chopping the veggies and showing them the ratios. There were other kids helping chop up the veggies and make the beans for the food we were going to eat later in the day. Um, so that, that was cool. Everyone was involved in a different way. Um, but it was really fascinating. Like I showed them that um, one little quarter cup of beans, like if you have a quarter cup of beans and a quarter cup of rice dry, and then I taught them the ratios of the water to that. Um, I was like, you can do the math of like this times six if you want, but like just so you understand, like if you're cooking this for for just yourself and someone else, one a quarter cup of each of the legumes and the grains makes two plates of food with, with the veggies and the water and all of that. But like mm -hmm. that was something I had to learn because I was cooking too much food and I recently unplugged my fridge. Thank you, Josh. Wow. Um, because like, wow, I guess I should eat the food sooner instead of like two weeks later. It's kind of gross. <laughs> um, yeah, so my food is fresher than your food. <laughs> Not your, not you, <laughs> you generally. In one instance, your fridge will keep something fresh, but refrigerators in general lead to less fresh. Right. The systemic effect is opposite the right. one-time effect. Right. One flight will bring you to someone far away. Mm -hmm. Flying in general leads you to have people that you love being to live flying distance away from someone you love. Right, right, right. Building um, one road will alleviate traffic in the short term, but in the long term, it'll create more traffic. Right. These, yeah, so sorry, I couldn't help. No. Yeah. But, good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you unplugged so your fridge. Cool to hear. It was awesome. And we had gone to the farmer's market early, like um, earlier in the weekend. So the food we were bringing in was fresh and trash free. And I don't know if the kids like ha really tasted that particular flavor, um, but it was cool to like to hold up a bundle of carrots and be like, this is four dollars. Like the scoop, like this whole bag of beans was four dollars and I'm taking one tiny scoop. So we can like kind of round down to zero. <laughs> like you have some change in your pocket. That's how much these beans were. Um, and they got to choose which I, I did only bring. You had suggested that I find another um, pressure cooker. I wasn't able to get one. So we ended up making two rounds of food, but it was cool to let them choose. Like I brought a variety of grains and a variety oh, of legumes yeah. so they you know there was some agency on their end and they could experiment with things that they were like what is that i was like i think it's barley i don't remember it was like in a big by the pound thing like try try buying something that you don't um that you don't eat you know it'll it'll be good i promise um and then and then you know like watching it cook watching the kids like chop up the garlic and then learn sort of watch what happens to the food when it's in the pressure cooker pressurized and then like when and why we add stuff later mm. um I think I, oh, I had brought some kale. That's right. And just chopped it up real fine. Cause I think, you know, for the for the children, um, it's easier. It just goes down easier if there's not a lot of like <laughs> chewing the greens. Um, and what was really beautiful is like by the end of the first, um, pot of food, um, you know, I had explained, like we had made what was the equivalent of six plates, but because there's 30 kids, we just made a bunch of little tasting dishes and mm -hmm. it was fast. It was like, so um, rewarding to just watch them disappear, like watch them get gobbled up. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, and I forgot one of my secret ingredients. I use this as a Josh trick. I know that you like to add raisins or like a little something sweet um, after the or pressure. For them. Yeah. for them. Yeah, for them. Yeah, I never do that for me. <laughs> well, I'm way above that. For me. 
It's <laughs> yeah, not me. Um, and for all you listeners out there, it's okay if you still want to add raisins to your dinner. <laughs> yeah, when when someone's over, I put in a lot more like carrot or sweet potato or mm -hmm. squash, good or pumpkin. If you can see that pumpkin over there, yep, know your and, audience. Um, yeah, but when it's me, see for me, I like to eat fruit in my dessert, mm -hmm. so I put in less of like carrots in the stew and eat more apples and pears mm -hmm. afterward. Num num. So raisins are just like it's raisins that I use for making um I put them in when I make vinegar with the apples. Nice. Yeah, really you know a lot of like advanced tricks. You know like hot sauce and like oh, yeah. fermenting cabbage and stuff. I'm I'll get there. I'm just not there yet. And the, and I didn't have any raisins, so I brought these dried cherries that I actually was picking when I had met yeah. the chef. It was uh -huh. it was like so beautiful that that like these cherries that, yeah, they're two months old, right? But they're two months old from my hand. There's nothing. It's just cherries that like got the wet out of it yeah, <laughs> and live a in a of, jar. A lot of dried cherries in the bulk food sections are, are sweetened with sugar mm. and cranberries too. It's like they're fruit. They're fruit. They already have their sugar. But if, you have, but if you're, yeah, but like corporate production of food leads to having to pick them in times that, yeah. I mean, we all, we all know this, but it was really. Even the health food stores. Oh, interesting. I, I asked my health food store if they have, if they're ever going to have like dry, uh, dried fruit in bulk. And they're like, no, we need to be sanitary. <laughs> I was like, all right, <clears throat> I'll drive across the border to Winco or whatever. Um, so this food is disappearing into their, into their little mouths. And the adults in the room who like, I had realized like, oh God, I need to like introduce myself. I'd come in running like, sorry, I'm late guys. Um, <laughs> new town. I don't know where I am. Um they, you know, they had a million questions. Like it was cool to watch the adults come like, okay, so how do you like asking questions and like, oh, can you add this? Or when would you put this in? Or how much, how much for this much? And um, even a woman asked me, is there cheese in this? And I was like, no. Would you have um, nutritional yeast? Yeah, of course. There you go. Of course yeah. there's nutritional yeast because as a vegetarian, I now count on it for my B12. And mm. like you said, it kind of feels like there's something missing when you don't have it. It's like that it adds like a bit, it adds a flavor that's yeah, um, integral to the to the like wholeness of the of the hash. Um, also, I live in Oregon, so a lot of people ask, "Is there weed in here?" It's like mm -hmm. not yet, but that's a great idea. <laughs> Maybe we can have the adult version um, of the spiked dinner. But um, ultimately, like it was a big success. I remembered at the end, like, "Oh yeah, you can put up you can put like nuts on top," and they had some nuts that they had already roasted there, like as a class. So they chopped oh. them up and put some on top, and, and like started. To, you could see them starting to see um the possibilities because it's just so different i also showed everybody a picture of one of the foods that i had made like made a particularly gorgeous um i think i showed it on yeah, i think i yeah, showed with the cherry tomatoes <laughs> yeah. on top yeah yeah, yeah exactly because it's just so beautiful and so when when people like it's one thing to hear the words that's just like cognitive recognition but when your eyes see it and then when your mouth tastes it you, you understand smell. like oh yeah. this really is delicious this really is delicious and i actually uh Okay, so the group of kids who were like the little chatterers, like the not listeners, you know, they came back and they're like, it was really good. Be even better with meat. <laughs> like, all right, well, go hunt an elk and throw some ground chuck in there. Like, you do you. But it was it was cool that even they were engaged. You know what I mean? Even if they had like a little, you know, dig or addition. I mean, a culinary suggestion. It was cool to see that even they had tried it. Mm -hmm. Um and, oh, okay, so I've been meaning to ask you, I've been wanting to follow up with you. This sweet um, young woman came up after her and said, um, she said she was diabetic, she was type 1 diabetic. She's really been working to, she, um, she's a pescatarian. Mm -hmm. um, 
doesn't eat meat but does eat fish <laughs> i didn't want to suggest sea spirits to her quite yet because let's take one step at a time but she um she asked about um like protein that that would be safe for her because she knew that legumes also had a lot of carbohydrates i was like well i know quinoa is like a high protein grain there might be other grains like that but i'll check with my people to see if they have any like specific ideas or interventions for um, type 1 diabetes so i'm asking you now if you know anything or if you know any um... yeah the source i would look for is uh, nutritionfacts.org dr michael greger who's been a guest oh, okay. and also jo dr joel Furman, eat to live and they're both very into they've both came to the same diet that i did but they came to it through health and science right. of nutrition mm -hmm. science and I came to it through sustainability. sustainability. Uh, wow, so, cool. um, how not to diet, I think would be the book to look at from Dr. Michael Greger and eat to live by Dr. Joel Furman. Uh, okay. And if you look up Greger's videos and just search, he's got a million, he's got thousands of, of little three to five minute videos. And if you just search on beans or legumes and protein, because he talks about that, apparently what I remember is that Animal protein actually spikes insulin more than you'd think. Right. And beans, I think, really level out your um, beans and berries, I think, really level out your insulin levels. Okay. Or, uh, sorry, not the insulin levels, but the, um, the blood, sugar. blood sugar spike. Cool. Okay. Great. I'll um, send those resources to the chef who can share them with the young lady. And so the, I, what, can you describe the emotions of, the students. I mean, I think you're kind of hinting at it, but what, how would you describe their, their emotions um, and also the chefs? Yeah. Okay. I didn't really get like the chef was sort of out of my awareness. He just like gave me the mic and I was trying to juggle like 30 different sets of needs and try to engage, you know, I was trying to call on kids. Um, I know later the chef was like, wow, good job. Like people spoke up today who I've never heard talk in class before. I was like, neat. <laughs> That's what mm -hmm. happens when you ask someone directly a question, you don't give them a choice. Um, but I would say, well, one, that group of students was not a monolith, so it's not like they all felt one thing. I would say that there was some skepticism. There was also some, like, enthusiasm. There were definitely kids who, from the beginning, were really eager, like, um, to at least learn. And I think when I – and this was based on your suggestion. I had mentioned to them, like, I, there, are, there are some, like, junk food items that I still struggle with not eating because they just speak to what the – junk food? I don't, well, I've never heard this term. Oh, doof. Yeah, yeah. Right. Sorry. I, I, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. There is some doof that I still consume. And I think that was actually a bridge of um, like partnership building or, you know, engagement. Like I think that telling them that like it's not, I'm not immune from the culture that we all live in. So, mm -hmm. you know, like um, a kid held up a bag of uh, Flamin' Hot Cheetos when I was like, what's everyone's favorite food? What do you like to eat? He held up Flamin' Hot Cheetos. I was like, whew, yep, that's the one. Uh. <laughs> I feel you. I feel you. Um, so I think they, they probably, there was like some skepticism and then there was some trust building and then there was enthusiasm. Um, I think there was a lot of curiosity like there was a there was a lot of like you could see sort of the wheels turning. I mean, these are kids whose parents still feed them more or less. And you you could tell the kids who were more in tune with what their grocery bill or grocery system was. You know, some were like, I don't know, my mom does it and food mm -hmm. just shows up. Um, 
And so I like my hope was that this plants the seed for the moment when they do feed themselves or when they are responsible. I know one of like one of one of the things the chef does with the kids is teach them one dish to make on Thanksgiving so that like they really start. It's not like cooking isn't this thing that you just do later in life when you have to. It's you know, you can start now and you can participate in the you don't have to wait for your mom to cook you all your food. So my hope is that um, some of the kids are inspired enough. Some, I, I would say that by the end, there was, there was some sense of inspiration. No one really said that, but you could see it in their eyes and you could see it, you know, when they were eating like this, um, this sort of new awareness of what was possible and the adults, like mm-hmm. um, there are a lot of special needs kids in this class. Cause it's a great place to <laughs> actually learn stuff when like you're, um, when sitting down and shutting up is not a great model for your learning mm-hmm. <laughs> style. Um, and so they are assigned like extra adults, you know, for, um, for like one-on-one or one-on-two support. I think it's one-on-four, but so there were like three or four or five, maybe even extra adults in the room, not just the chef. Um, he has an assistant, but I don't, I don't think she, she kind of made herself scarce. I think there were maybe some people who, I don't know, like they heard sustainability and they went running oh. or at least <laughs> there was one, oh. but the rest the rest seemed um like they never said it but it seemed like they were it was like an eye-opening experience for them like Mm -hmm. oh this in a way that you wouldn't believe if you couldn't taste it (laughs) one of my favorites every now and then this happens it's been a while since before the pandemic because i don't have people as, as over much also since i've with the solar i well now i got the second battery again it came back they fixed it um, oh, nice. so I'm drunk with power again, but <laughs> when I was down to only half a kilowatt hour, I couldn't invite people over. Cause if it was raining, then it wouldn't work. And I was like, I, I was having a lot of just, you know, salads, which is fine for me, but it's not like exciting for others. Anyway, sometimes like I, I, they see everything that I put in it. They see every ingredient that goes into it. And more than once, someone would take a bite and go, that's really good. What's in it. Right. <laughs> Because I think that they're seeing healthy, 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 healthy. And, and they're thinking, taste bad, taste bad, taste bad, taste bad, taste bad. And they taste it like, this is really good. Where's Something the magic? Something's in here. Yeah. They saw everything that went in there. Right. And What's the magic that mindset you? shift is just, yeah, that kind of, that flavor. That's one of the things that was really beneficial that worked out for me was for a long time, I talked about sustainability being delicious. Yeah. Because that was my big experience, the big shift. And it's very visceral. I mean, there's a little more sensory than well the taste and the smells and the touch everything i mean food is is everything smell taste touch hearing uh what i leave out uh anyway it's got all five senses and yeah when someone says or that time when the uh, conservative dude was over here and it didn't even occur to me that when i said vegan anything and he takes one bite he goes i can't even tell there's no meat in it right like what oh yeah right yeah, vegan. Vegan you were is a anticipating word. it to taste bad. Yeah, vegan. Is, people associate the word vegan with disgusting, and that. Okay, so the um the taco bar that I served at the community me- meeting later that day, the chef was like, "Do you want me to get some chicken?" And I was like, "No, no. Let like let's serve them the food that is nourishing, and like let's not even give them that option." And yeah, there were there was more than one comment late that night where people said, oh, "Oh, I never, I would never, I never choose the vegan option." But this was actually really good. 
Yeah, <laughs> good. You're right. I mean, there was some. Um, now I'm going to put a little side here that I, I've seen this. This you got to search for it online because it's not on YouTube. But there's this video called "The Great Dance." Did I, I, I'm sure. I, did I tell you about it? Mm-hmm. It's about the San, this hunter-gatherer culture, hunting, and there's three different ways that they hunt, and they what they're doing is very different. Is like it's the opposite of factory farming. Right. And I'm vegan in this world. I don't know what I would do if I were living with them. I'm not going to live with them. So it's an abstract question. I have better things to think about. But there's a huge difference between eating meat in our culture and eating meat as they did, as as, as our ancestors did for 250,000 years. That's right. I live in Oregon. Everybody hunts. So I'm, I'm all, I was like, I'll eat meat if I'm, if the person who took the life of the thing is, is eating there with me. I, like that, that's a, that doesn't conflict with my moral ethic or like that doesn't conflict with my values. You acknowledged that, that the, that the meat that we're eating was the ending of a life. It wasn't like the separate thing that came in a pack, in a pack, plastic package. Yeah. I'll be more direct that if I eat or pay for um, factory farming, whether you care about animals or not, that hurts people. Go on. Whether you care about people, it hurts animals. And it hurts, it, it, it lowers Earth's ability to sustain life. Can you just say a little more about that? Because you and I both agree. But maybe for people listening, they're thinking, what? How does eating meat hurt people? In fact, you're farming? Mm-hmm. One way is that they, you, the runoff from runoff from the factory farm because i'm sure people have seen pictures of factory farms and it's like there's no plants around there there's food shipped in there's all this poop and that poop is really um it could be fertilizer but it ends up in this country you know mostly in the um mississippi river so these rivers that the hudson river here it used to be um back 400 years ago when the fish came up to spawn they would create tidal waves because there's so many fish and I mean, read um, J.B. McKinnon's Once in Future World. And he talks about how fish uh, ships out in the ocean, sailboats before steam, they would get caught stuck in the middle of the ocean Whoa. because the fish were so dense that in the water that they were stuck there. I mean, th- so anyway, so this runoff goes in there and it causes um, algae to grow, which and, and it, it makes it in this weird situation where it sucks up all the, uh, makes it, what do they do? It creates it's so much oxygen that the things can't live or sucks up the oxygen. So think, so you get this big dead zone at the mouth of the Mississippi into the um, Gulf of Mexico where nothing can grow. Um, or if you go to um, other places, you get these algal blooms. But also... Um, but what if I don't live in those places, Josh? Well, you're lowering Earth's ability to sustain life. If it is the question, you don't want to, you don't care if others get hurt, but you, as long as you're okay yourself, I can't speak to that. Um, the other thing is the fertilizer it takes to grow all the plants for them, because you take it takes ten times more plants to grow animal. Yeah, like a pound of animal took ten pounds of plants to make it, so you have to make a lot more plants. So that means you've got to have artificial fertilizer, which means which that's coming from fossil fuels. It's the only way we can make artificial fertilizer. There's no hope on the horizon of any other way of doing it. Of course, so that leads to, um, well, the, it leads to all the effects of fossil fuels. So that's going to be people from the land that there's fossil fuels and minerals underneath it, kick them off. So that's imperialism, colonialism, slavery. 
You don't believe it? Look up Earth rights. Look up Unical versus um, uh, Doe versus Unical, uh, and follow on from that. Uh, and then you're going to have the pollution that comes out of that. You're going to have wars over these resources. So, um, and if you believe that somehow in the future maybe we'll be able to make artificial fertilizer some other way, okay, in the future start doing that. But right now that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. So if in the future we can have sustainable airplane fuel, which I highly doubt, mm -hmm. that's not the plane that you're flying today. Right. The plane you're flying today uses jet fuel. Right. So it's okay. How does, I'm how does jet fuel harmful? If we have in the future, we can feed 10 trillion people on this planet and it's all sustainable. Great. I, I'm all for it. But the worst way to get there is to live unsustainably today. Mm -hmm. The best way to get there is to live sustainably today and then keep growing things, right. uh, keep developing things. And if it's possible, great, I'm all for it. I'm, I'm, I'm more for it than anybody else. If it's not possible, better we stop now. So then you can get into overshoot and collapse if you really want to get into some systems, systems dynamics. But if you have, uh, well, I'll tell a story about um, uh, a friend of mine, Kevin, out in the West. So he bought a ranch in Idaho, I believe. He's retirement age. And he meets a hunter out there. Doesn't touch. And he, um, they're sitting there and the hunter points out there's a bunch of elk off in the distance. And the hunter says, how many elk do you see over there? And Kevin says, about 100. He goes, yeah. You know, I've lived here a long time and I hunt and there's enough food here for 75 elk over the winter. So Kevin goes, I guess that means... 25 of them are going to die over the winter. And the hunter says, no, 25 are going to live. Because the 100 of them don't get together and say, well, there's enough food for 75, so you 25 go die. They don't, they just all eat. So the next day, there's enough food, if there's enough food for 75 over the winter, but all 100 are eating it, then the next day there's enough for 74 over the winter. And they all 100 eat it. And the next day there's enough for 73 over the winter than 72. So they're all eating it faster than they can oh, sustain themselves. Metaphor for because a hundred of them are eating, they're not rationing it out. They're all eating the share, so that by the end of the winter, when the spring is about to come, the the twenty five who make it are barely making it. Now a lot of people will listen to this and say, "Okay, there's another effect too, which is the elk." Okay, a big effect is that when the spring comes, the plants will regrow. But if we depend on a non renewable resource and it doesn't regrow, Right. We could hit in, we could, we could drop down by three quarters as they do, but we're way over. We're not like a hundred when it's 75, we're like 8 billion when it's 3 billion. So it's like, will you remind me two and a half times over? Hold on. Let me, I got to keep okay, going okay. now. Sorry. The, uh, um, um, Sorry. there's also a wide variety of stuff going on there. There's, there's a lot of different animals. Take when you make, I don't know if you've ever tried to uh, make wine. You put grapes and let them ferment. You let the, um, the yeast turn the sugar into the alcohol. Well, the alcohol is poison for the yeast. So you, you may know that you can't get alcohol content above like 15%, somewhere around there. Now you can distill it to higher amounts and that'll get to higher, but that will kill everything in it. You can use alcohol as a, as a disinfectant. It kills things. Mm. So it's more like yeast where we're living in our own waste. 
<laughs> which the elk don't have to deal with. So if you put more and more sugar, you know, the, the higher content wines tend to be sweeter because you have to put more sugar in. But after a certain point, you can put in all the sugar, that is to say energy, you want. You won't get any more alcohol out because the yeast can't live in their own poop anymore, their own waste. Now I'll throw in one more thing is that our waste is not just our poop, but we have waste that never existed before in nature, which is plastic, radioactive stuff, carcinogens, all these exotic poisons that don't break down. Right. So, and some people might say, well, we're smarter than elk. We can solve these things. Well, we're smarter in some ways and not smarter in others because elk don't have, they don't draw lines on maps and say, if you cross this, I will not, I will defend myself. And they don't have machine guns and bombs that we are, we have thousands of years of history of showing that we, we kill each other for these things at much higher rates that the elk don't. Right. Now it could be that we solve some things, but one of the big solutions is don't put the population above what this, what can the environment can sustain. That message has been out there. It, it, it does work. We know it works, but there's a large part of the population that will not accept it. What so, works? Population control? Keeping the population below. All right, most indigenous cultures say they know. Well, the ones that have been around for how thousands, can, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, they know don't go above a certain amount. Right. So that we know that that works. It's worked for hundreds of thousands of years. Now we have these traditions, these cultures born of agriculture that it switched and, you know, and it really kicked an over, overdrive in 1492 when it was suddenly from the perspective of, of the Europeans, which is to say Europeans were indigenous to the Middle Easterners, mm -hmm. right? The empires came up, the Hittites and all them, then Greece, then Rome. So the Europeans were indigenous at one point and they got assimilated. Mm -hmm. We are assimilated too, if we're living unsustainably, which is to say whatever, if anyone out there is like, Europeans did this, well, you're one of them. You're part of that culture unless you're living sustainably. In any case, from the perspective of, of those in 1492 who found these two new continents, they saw infinite territory. It was basically infinite from their perspective. Mm -hmm. So they adopted a culture of, well, there's infinite resources. M more land means more energy because it's so, uh, plant, arable land, I should say. Well, actually, for that, most people don't distinguish between arable and unarable land. But if it's arable land, that means plants can grow and that's solar powered energy. Mm -hmm. So we have abandoned principles that worked for hundreds of thousands of years. Mm -hmm. They actually, it looks like most of them also lost. They also had these crashes on the scale of dozens of people or hundreds of people. Hmm. and worked into their culture guardrails. Mm -hmm. Don't eat the last fruit. Don't kill the last animal. Right. Always leave something for nature. Now, you'd have to ask them how this implements because I'm not there. Right. But my understanding, and also if someone tries to become the dominant, tries to dominate the group, ridicule them. And Well, groups, yeah. Groups of other men would like get get together i i mean sorry i don't have like specific examples but i read about this in tribe by sebastian younger which you recommended about mm -hmm. like the one of those guardrails is that like if one guy started taking all the stuff like more than he could eat or more than his fair share other groups usually of men would stop him mm -hmm. yeah it's men women i mean the in the in the serious hunter gather in, in like james sussman stuff in the san bushman in the kalahari desert and there's m many other um 
immediate return hunter-gatherer communities. It's there's no dominance between men, women, even gerontocracy. There's not uh, patriarchy. There's not a gerontocracy, hmm. and it, it, no one knows for sure. But the anthropologists seem to say that that is the closest replica of what closest representation or, or of how most of our ancestors lived. I am learning a lot um, at this point in my social work studies about polyvagal theory and about our nervous system. Um, the evolution of our nervous system started as, you know, before we could move, before we were human, like the part of our brain that's pre-human is um, dorsal vagal, which is one part of our parasympathetic, which is basically freeze. It's the like freeze response to survival. Like you can't move. The next thing that, that was developed was our sympathetic response. That's like uh, <laughs> once we have bodies and we can move and like run away, fight or flight. That, but fi- the, the, the most evolved component of our nervous system, it's the second part of our um, parasympathetic nervous system. It's called ventral vagal. And that's the part that learned to co-regulate as a group. It's, what, it's how we survived like working together to catch big game, which is more than we could eat or survive um, solo. And so there's like a developmental evolutionary argument to the reality that, I don't know, sorry, I guess I don't remember how like it was related to what you were saying, but um, yeah. So I'm going to talk about my thing up in the Bronx on Sunday. Oh yeah, great. Let let me see. It's not handy. I made some notes to, uh, um, so it's my third annual cooking workshop up in the Bronx, actually third annual at Drew Gardens, because there's one at the at this church community center the year before that. So maybe it's my fourth annual. In any case, um, in past years, it's been about the famous no packaging vegan solar powered stew, although it wasn't solar powered before. And this year, I decided to go for a bit more because so Drew Gardens is by my estimation, one of the best, most beautiful spots in New York City, Mm -hmm. and vying for Central Park. Now Central Park has huge size Mm -hmm. and it's got all this corporate support but this is tiny but it's i know the people um who who did it who actually it turns out 30 years ago they cleared it out from being a a junkyard so it wasn't the people who were doing it now but it's been going for 30 96 i think is when they started and it's right along the the bronx river Mm -hmm. which is a freshwater river and they have like it was cold when i was there but it's got the boating and and like but it's really just and when I walk up to this place, there's iron gates around it, and there's a, it's a bus stop. And so I say to this guy, uh, the gates are locked, and the people are inside, so i got to wait for them to come out and get me. And so I'm talking to this guy who said, oh, they were just there. And I say, oh, I'm doing this cooking demo. I want to come in. So it's just some random guy who's waiting for the bus. And he comes in, and he's like, he's waiting for the bus all the time. He's never been in there. And he's like, this is amazing. And it is amazing. Wow, cool. And, uh, um, and so it was Julio or Mario or that. Anyway, there... I'm the only one who doesn't speak, who only speaks English. Well, I got right. some French too. Uh, and um, first they give me the tour and they're growing more and more and more. So the, like the, the, the city and the state have given them friction. Someone wants to get promoted or who knows what, like no one gets it because this, this is this really beautiful space, but politics are weird. But so they're moving, they're getting, the city wants to expand at the far end of it is uh, the Bronx, uh, Cross Bronx Expressway. And they want to make more plant. They, they want a fruit uh, forest. Oh, cool. In any case, they're showing me around. Uh, and I'm, there's a few people who came, not that many because it was postponed for rain from the week before. My mom was supposed to be there. My sister was trying to be there. Oh. And because I want to, 
so I said, all right, I'm going to talk about the food. I'm going to talk about how to make the stew. And I talk about the price and I talk about it. Also, you don't need a fridge because I had a sweet potato, a carrot. These things, they're fine without refrigeration for months. Dry beans for years. Right. And I had some chard and some collard greens, but they had, char- they had collard greens and, uh, and kale. So I used their stuff. Like growing? There. Yeah. Yes. And they're like, we, we don't charge for it. Fresh and in the middle of the Bronx. Yes. So I'm like, all right, let's use your stuff. Also some peppers and what else do we, some, anyway, they got lots of stuff there. They got um, sage and mint and the cherry tomatoes, peppers, just grown there. And kalaloo, um, they got, like, they're just Drew? with corn. What? How do you spell Drew Gardens? D-R-E-W. Okay. Like Andrew. Right. And uh, um, so then I say, when I was a kid growing up, my parents helped organize a food, um, a, uh, like a buyer's club with the co-op. Yeah. Buyer's club. And a neighbor, somehow they got in touch with a neighbor who had got it going and it was 10 people that or 10 families. And every 10 weeks, it was your turn to at 4am to go down to the, go down to South Philly to the distribution center. And that's all the way in South Philly, you in the Bronx, you got, um, uh, what's it called? Um, they, they have a, distribu- a huge distribu- distrib- distribution center right there. It'll come to me in a second. Hunter's Point. And um, because, and so everyone put in their orders on, I think like Wednesdays, and then someone would go down at 4 a.m. on Thursdays. They'd get 10 families worth of a week, a week's food for 10 families. Mm-hmm. So people who know engineers may have heard engineers often say quality time price pick two you don't get three well by going at 4 a.m they get the earliest stuff they get the best quality because they're buying for in bulk they get the lowest price because you only have to go down once every every 10 weeks it's less time so you win on all three plus you get community right now it finally hit me that people kept telling me possibly because I own my apartment in Greenwich Village. I got the Ivy League degrees. They're like, Josh, you don't know what it's like up there. You know what it's like for a single mom with three kids in a food desert. And it finally hit me that my parents weren't environmental. In fact, if you listen to my podcast episode with my mom, she, the podcast episode doesn't, the Spodic method didn't work with her. And when you and I did the workshop in the spring, we were talking about sometimes it's difficult with family because of emotional things. And I thought, yeah, you're right. It is that emotional stuff. And it could be that. Also, my mom's idea of the environment is she grew up on a farm in South Dakota. And her idea of the environment is it's like 100 degrees out. They got no air conditioning. You step out, you open the screen door for a second, and you got mosquito bites all over the place. That's her idea of nature. She has no, I've never heard from her, a positive view, a view of like, that's what I like. So she talked about how she misses the birds, but she does not want to return to no air conditioning and mosquitoes all over the place. Mm-hmm. And they did these things, like start the co-op. I, when we lived on Rockland Street and I would go to the neighbor's houses and they got the welfare peanut butter because everyone on, everyone on Rockland Street was on welfare. My mom was like, we weren't. So we were, at that time, the co-op was formed. So we were shopping in the co-op and the peanut butter there is you can either get Peanuts is the only ingredient or peanuts with a little salt is the only ingredient. And you have to stir it all up because it separates. 
And the welfare peanut butter that the neighbors had, as well as the welfare cheese, I would just scoop it up because it was so sweetened. It was like candy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for most of my childhood, I loved going over to neighbors' houses because then we could get the sugar cereals. Mm-hmm. But the reason we didn't, and we loved when my parents would take us to McDonald's. That was like a rare treat because here's why. We're, why was that a rare treat because we were living sustainably? No, we may have been living somewhat sustainably, but that was expensive. Fresh was cheaper. Mm-hmm. My, I grew up in a world where fresh food from the buyer's club, was a, that's what you do when you don't have time, when you don't have money, and you have three kids to feed. Mm-hmm. And everyone who thinks that it's more expensive and takes more time, I'll put it in liberal terminology, they haven't had my lived experience. My lived experience is that it's, it, it saves time, it saves money, it's, it's more healthy, mm-hmm. it tastes better. But I didn't realize that when I was a kid. And when I was given the talk in, in um, Drew Gardens, and I was talking about what the, I can feel it coming up, when I was talking about what the co-op me, means to me now, and I didn't realize how much it meant to me then, mm-hmm. I was getting choked up. And they were like, we can see. It's McDonald's, they're not doing anyone any favors. They're not saving anyone any time, any money. But when you form so not everyone knows what a cop is. So a cop is, it's it's a store where everyone who shops there is an owner. And so there's there's not like- profit incentive. Jeff Bezos is pulling the money out to him. And giving it to shareholders, keeping it. Yeah, they're they're doing this favor to the shareholders. Mm -hmm. But but a a co-op, the motivation is- since whatever profits you get are just redistributed among everyone. Mm-hmm. And this is a contract. This is, you know, this is, this is totally capitalist mm-hmm. or not. If you want to be communist, it's communist. If you want to be capitalist, it's capitalist. It's a contract signed mm-hmm. where everyone has a mutual ownership of this thing. It's, it's as it's capitalist as you can, if you want yeah. it to be capitalist. It's a trade. It's an agreed trade. Yeah. Yeah. And so the motivation is higher quality food, lower prices, more of more um, variety. It's whatever the people want. I guess if you had a co-op and everyone wants Cocoa Puffs, you'll get Cocoa Puffs. But as it works out, people want what the, the Weaver's Way in Philadelphia, it was fresh produce from local places. I have so many follow-up questions about your mom, although I know we've talked about it a lot. We've talked about moms a lot. We've talked about your mom. I don't know if we want to go there. I just, maybe it doesn't even have to be about your mom, but talking about this idea that some people's experience with nature or like the environment is just it's bad it's dangerous it's uncomfortable like keep it away from me mm-hmm. that f- that feels like i mean i know it's true i know your mom's not the only one who feels that way also like nature and pets are some of the most universally regulating um uh, like external factors, like signals of safety for people to like help regulate their own systems. So like, it's almost universal that, I mean, not quite because there's some people who are like, no, no, no. But I guess my question is, are there so few of them that we can just acknowledge that that's who they are and how they are? And we can sort of move on and shift culture in a way that eventually they'll just be part of it, whether they like it or not. Or is there a way to address that like absence of a connection or a relationship with nature or the environment well I, I want to distinguish there's two broad there's a spectrum here but i'm going to talk i'm going to simplify and say there's one type of 
there's a, I think that there's a lot of people who will tell you nature is not that big a deal to them, but that's what they're saying on the surface mm. because they imagine you live in a world in which there's a lot of pollution going on and, and pollution brings you joy or things that pollute bring you joy right. and you don't want to fa- and you think you're a good person. You believe, I think most people believe they are good people. And then they recognize that what they're doing is hurting others. So um, uh, maybe they like the air conditioner. Maybe they like to come home to a cool apartment and they don't want to wait 30 seconds or five minutes for the apartment to cool off. So they leave the air conditioner on when they're out. And they probably feel like, well, that is kind of polluting. My energy is coming from coal or whatever. And maybe they feel like I'm polluting other people's worlds, but I like this. So inside there's this internal conflict of I like it but it hurts people. I feel like I'm a good person, but I'm doing something I feel is bad. Mm-hmm. So this internal conflict is painful. It's difficult. It's, it's, it's easier to deny and suppress it than it is mm-hmm. to face it. So if you deny and suppress it, then you keep doing, or to say it's good. A lot of people find ways to say that things that they do bad are actually good. It's actually helping the economy or something like that. Sure. So, if someone said, if I say to that person, tell me about a time in the environment that you really enjoyed, they might think, hmm, I'm hurting the environment. Like I've, I've, I've worked out how that's, the environment is bad and we got to defeat the environment or something like that. A lot of people in Silicon Valley have that view of like, we have to defeat nature. This is this quote by um, the guy who started Google's health ventures. Like nature is what we have to defeat, something like that. And good luck with that. So there's this internal conflict that gets resolved by squeezing nature out mm-hmm. so to get to them they're going to feel very vulnerable when asked does the environment mean something to you and so they're going to say no because they don't want to face this conflict there'll be other mechanisms going on but i think there's a lot of people who um they're not going to tell you they're not going to be open with themselves or anyone else about what the environment means to them. So with people like that, you have to be, oh yeah, I'll tell you have to be for them to open up, but it, I realized this from learning how to be supportive and non-judgmental, extra with them, mm-hmm. because so many times I've done this and then it eventually comes out. Sometimes that first question, the spotic method of, of, you know, can you think of a time out in the environment that's something meaningful to you? And they'll talk about some nature show mm. or something that's not their personal experience. Or like mm. they went to a, a theme park or they saw something beautiful from an airplane. And it's, that's, that's not their experience of nature, but that's what they allow it to be about. Or they'll spend a lot, a lot of time talking about what they read in the paper about all these problems of deforestation and global warming and things like that. And that's not their experience of nature. That's their experience of reading about nature or reading about human effects. So I'm not sure how many people out there, nature means nothing to them. Because I've had plenty of people on the podcast who lived, grew up in cities and even growing up in, in like Brooklyn where there wasn't access to a forest, there was still the park at the end of the block that meant something to them. Mm -hmm. So with my mom, I suspect that there's something in there, 
one of the things, when I talk about how this has made me closer to my family, a lot of it is realizing huge gaps in my relationships with my, with my parents. My dad just died, so that won't be able to patched up in a two-way two direction. But in the case of my mom, it, it really, it, it dawned on me a little while ago. We were, I was at, um, she was in town and a friend of hers was visiting from France. And the three of us were having a drink together. And so she was, the Celine, the one from France, was asking me about what, uh, what I do. And so I said, I'll do the spot with you. So my mom was sitting between us because she knew she knows both persons. So you'd think she'd be in between. She said, no, I'll go over there. So now I'm talking to Celine. Also, Celine's English is great. My French is like terrible. So, and it was a loud bar. So it was e easier to be closer. But my mom just disengaged. My mom will butt into every conversation. But when we were doing the Spodek method, she was like, oh, you guys talk. So one of the things that Celine asked me was, what do you do if someone doesn't, just doesn't care? And I said, well, my definition of, of leadership is helping other people do what they already want to do, but haven't figured out how. So if the person really has nothing connecting, I can't lead them. I got nothing to do. So I got to go on to the next person. Right. And I also said how I've done something like a thousand times by now, maybe more, maybe not, I'm not sure, but it's worked almost every time. And I didn't say it because my mom was there. My mom was one of the cases where it didn't happen, mm. but it, it really hit me only after that conversation that I didn't have anything to work with my, with my mom. She didn't share any, there was nothing about nature that she liked, that she told me that she liked. So the odds of me being super in, in, into sustainability leadership, the odds that my mom would be like one of the few people who doesn't care about nature, pretty low, I would think. I mean, she and my stepfather go camping, but he does it all. And I don't know if she's... Is it like in she, an RV or is it in a tent? A, a pull. Uh, when I was a kid, they had a, a, we'd go camping and the kids would get tents and they had this camper thing that unfolded that was towed behind. Hmm. I think they haven't... I think they still pull along a camper. And here's what really got me. You want to get like close with me and my mom. A little while ago, I was talking to her and she said at the end of the call, she goes, bye-bye, I love you. Even if sometimes I don't understand you. Right. And I think she said that before, but then it hit me. This is getting really personal here. It hit me. I don't think she's ever asked. Yeah. To understand. Yeah. And one thing I've noticed with her is that I believe that she she sees people as that way. Like someone is that way and that's the way it is. That's it. And you don't bring up differences because exposing conflict, in, in, in my mom's house growing up, I learned that if you expose the conflict, that's the problem. Right. If you just act like it's not there, no problem. If you bring it up, you're the problem. And it was a big deal for me, like business school, and I took classes in, in negotiation and learned conflict resolution, conflict management. And even my first boss, my first manager, the first time when I had a conflict with someone and my, um, that I worked with and the manager said, all right, each of you share what the problem is and let's figure it out. And I go, to me, that was like, fight. I heard her say, you guys fight. That's because that's what I grew up learning is like to say the conflict is to, is to expose it. And she goes, and I said, wait, you want us to share it? And she goes, yeah. How else can we resolve it? Right. And I'm like, well, first you have to name it. Oh, I, I guess that is how to solve it. And I'd like, this was when I was, this was, this would be 2005, 2006, 2004. So you were a grown up person. No, no, 2004, 2003. 
So I'm like 30 something years old and my first time learning this. That's crazy. So my mom, teaching I think kids in school. people are like this. People, are, you know, so-and-so is that way. And that's the way that person is. You just have to work around that. So I don't know how she sees me, but I think she's just like, Josh is just that way. Mm-hmm. Other people aren't. Mm-hmm. And so she just has to work around that. Mm-hmm. And I love you anyway. And the, so I called her later on and I said, have you ever asked me to try to understand it? And she goes, will you try to change me? I'm like, there's a huge difference between me trying to change you. Mm-hmm. She didn't say those words, but it was like, we get into fights or something like that. I was like, mom, everyone in the world wants to be understood. Nobody wants to be misunderstood. Right. I'm not trying to get you to do anything, but it would be nice for me to feel understood by my mom. Right. And she was like, well, understanding is, you know, I give these tests and, you know, she, now she's retired, but when she taught, she was like, we give these tests and you can't test understanding. I go, mom, I'm not testing you, but if I speak to you in English or I speak to you in French, you can understand one of those more than the other, right? She's like, yeah. I go, I'm not looking to test you, but you, there's levels of understanding, even if you can't quantify it through some test. And she's like, well, it's not the same as agreeing. I'm like, you're right. It's not the same as agreeing. That's not what we're talking about, she, Mom. She was like, she was like, she didn't say the word ambush either, but she was like, I, I don't, you're just dumping this all on me. I'm like, I'm just saying, I'm commenting on what you said. Mm-hmm. I would like to be understood. And mm-hmm. it's up to you if you want to ask me the questions for me to answer you. See, I feel like your mom, this is like a microcosm in a very like high density. There's like so many variables, like one, it's your mom Two, It's like one of the only people who you said, you know, the Spodak method doesn't work with. I don't know what the intersection, like if I had in, if it were the Wallace method or whatever, would she be more mm-hmm. open to, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, cause we, good... You know, cause we can't, but um, I just. And I, I want to mention, I'm not complaining here. I've not right. met the perfect parent. Right. So you get, you know, you get your issues with your parent, pick your, you know, whoever you are, I, I suppose, I, I don't know of anyone, maybe there are people who have just perfect relationships with their parents, but I don't expect that. There's love and support in all sorts of other areas. Sure. So, I, you know, I don't, yeah, this is, this is. Well, mine. thanks for that. Love you, mom. <laughs> and it could right, be, of course. I wonder about her growing up, you know, her father was an alcoholic and exactly. locked the kids in the basement sometimes. And so maybe she was just like, if someone's an alcoholic, you can't change that. Maybe. But maybe I'm just projecting like one thing I know about her that I don't know. Well, that I mean, what are her cues of safety? What are her cues of danger? Like, what? Yeah, that she's a whole, she's a whole system as well. I I feel like there's this microcosm happening here of hearing things that aren't said. You're talking about understanding. She's talking about um, judging or changing. Yeah, convincing and. Oh, you're, it's an ambush. So it's like, there's all, I can see her firing off. And I've had similar experiences. Like when I tried to bring up, um, talking about like race relations with the Rotary club, when I was part of Rotary, that's like notoriously male, pale and stale. And the conversation did not go well. And I feel like most of the feedback was that like, I was not presenting it well i was calling them racist and i would like comb through all the emails i was like did i even ever say racist like i really never did i was like this we need like this is happening in the world we should we're we're supposed to be the leaders we should probably talk about it and it seems like again like when you hold a mirror up or or even open the door to open the door to engage this seems like a common 
response in sustainability and why this photog method is like a really brilliant way to sort of come in the side door, like to sort of avoid all of those sort of reactions of like hearing things that haven't been said. I guess I just, I just wonder like, what can we do? I guess maybe the spotting method is the answer, but what can we do to at least minimize? Because there's always going to be some level of people hearing things that aren't said, I think, or like blaming the messenger for like, you know, like you're talking about wanting to be understood and your mom is saying she feels ambushed. Mm -hmm. So like something is, something isn't matching. Right. And like, Mm -hmm. so especially in the sustainability conversation, yeah, the Spodic method is one, I think roadmap, not just to match, but like (laughs) to sort of, I don't know, take a shortcut even. Well, there's, there's a couple of effects going on here. Now to answer your question of how to do it, I don't know of any better method than the, than the Spodic method, but that's in the short term. In the mm-hmm. long term, nothing beats community and culture and, and right. role models that people look up to. Right. So in the long run, the Spodic method is to kickstart, to get enough people to say, to, to realize through personal experience, the, myth, the myths of, you know, if we're not going forward, we're going to fall back in the stone age. And if we're not, if we're not progressful, pedal to the metal, then Mad Max apocalypse. Um, that food that's uh, sustainable tastes worse, costs more. Mm-hmm. So if we live in a culture that thinks sustainability is we're all going to die, 30 is going to be old age again, <laughs> then personal experience is the only thing. And, and it has to be, and it can't be through bludgeoning, through CCCSC bludgeoning. Right. So there's a lot of listening and making people feel understood and connecting with, with things that make them feel vulnerable. Mm-hmm. But in the long run, once there's a new culture forming, that's going to sweep across much more effectively. Sure. Now, there's, yeah. here's something for people who want to work on sustainability. You are going to have the following happen all the time. Other people are living in their unsustainable. So say you're living more sustainably than someone and you want to share, you, you, in, from your perspective, you've discovered this freedom that you didn't see before and you want to share that. Okay. Mm-hmm. But they're living in their culture that you were into. Mm-hmm. And if, if in their minds they they associate sustainability with guilt hmm. and shame consciously or even not or unconsciously well okay let's say that they feel guilty about let's say they have some knowledge that pollution is not healthy i feel like you say that and yes i understand like you've had a thousand of these conversations but like i was married to a person who still leaves all the lights on there's like not like there's no getting like I he watched me start to live differently. He like he or like return to the things I wanted to do in the first place that I sort of tamped down when I was partnered with someone who, who didn't prioritize that. But like there's no thought. I I can see there's no thought of like how or, much garbage. Or there's thought that's that's suppressed and denied. Oh okay. So yeah, I guess there's conscious thought, but I don't yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's go back to the I've abused, known. abusing children. A parent who is, let's say someone who was abused as a child becomes an adult and they abuse a child. And for some reason it there, and their parents said to them, it's because I love you. And so they have some, some connection between love and, 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 and abuse. Mm-hmm. They see their child crying. They hear other people saying it's don't abuse your children. They know there's a problem. But to them, that's not and, abuse, it's love. 
And yeah, and there's also they're keeping out everything to the contrary. So we all know about um, right. confirmation, confirmation bias. bias. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there, if someone's been living for decades where progress is good and pollution is, exactly. the solution to pollution is dilution and, and yes. someone else will solve it and all the things, you know, the plane was going to find And their role models are polluting. Their role models just then, have really clean houses. Yeah, so when they, so I if you go to someone like that, so the, the following will happen. They will feel like, well, I was doing fine. You talked to me and now I feel guilty. Right. You made me feel guilty. So right. go away. Right. See, now, what happened was their conscience made them feel guilty. I can't make some like when I lived in France and people would be like, oh, you're such an American. I was like, yep. They were trying <laughs> to put me down and I was, didn't put me down. Right. There are problems with America. I'm happy to be an American. Mm -hmm. And so I can't make someone feel guilty. Sure. If they're, if they're doing something that they don't think is bad, they're not going to feel guilty. Right. So that doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean go up to them and be like, Hey man, if you feel guilty, that's on you. I didn't do it. It's on you. That doesn't work either. I mean, right. it's not, it's not their responsibility for me to be understood. So I got to figure out what works, but everyone out there, just because someone because you feel guilty when someone talks about sustainability doesn't mean that they're trying to make you feel guilty. Right. It may be, it may be that they are, I'm not sure, but many times they're not. I don't think, um, I don't know. I can't speak for anybody else, but I know lots of people. I'm just not even saying anything. And they're like, right. you're trying to make me feel guilty. Or even like speaking, like, I feel like I I'll, I'll say an I sentence. Like, oh, I decided not to fly because I realized the damage I was doing. And it, it like spins into this story of don't tell me what to do. It's like I, I... So the, the challenge here is to empathize with the other person. Here's sure. the exercise is fine. First, I'll do a blunt one. When I see people litter, mm -hmm. I'm walking down the street and I see someone throw litter on the ground. I would never, I have littered in the past when I was a kid, but I wouldn't litter now. Sure. But that person felt it was okay. Right. So given what's in my head and in my heart, that's not okay. Right. But for them, it was. So that means I'm not empathizing with them. Empathizing with them would be get to a place in my head and my heart where that does make sense, where that's a good thing to do. And it's uncomfortable. So when I teach this type of exercise to my students in, at NYU in leadership class, I point out the most uh, huge case which is, I think of World War II, the generals that were fighting Hitler. If you want to beat Hitler, you got to think like him. You got to go to a place where you want to, you want to kill people for their, for their religion, for all these things, and you want to take over the world, and you think Aryans are the best and so forth. You got to get to there. Hmm. If you don't, you might lose. Hmm. He might win. So that must have been very deeply uncomfortable for people to find that part. I mean, Hitler was human. Correct. He was born of human parents, and that meant that what's in him was in us. Right. And that means we can connect with that. Now, I'm not saying try to be like Hitler. Right. <laughs> but some people did it. And what I'm saying is, if you want to understand why do people litter, if you want to, if you don't care, if if I want to influence them, I got to go to where they are. Sure. So that's where they are emotionally and intellectually. 
Right. So if someone always views any talk about sustainability or the environment as guilt, mm-hmm. right? Why does that, you got to go to where that was, which is probably in your past as well. And that's this exercise of empathy. And it's not easy. It's not comfortable. But it's essential for effective leadership. Essential. It's also, that's part of the reason why I'm so into learning about indigenous cultures. Sure. Why well, I love that movie, um, The Great Dance, because it was like, they did it actually. When they're hunting animals, right. there are scenes where they're like hunting a kudu or whatever, some animal, like a, a springbok or something that jumps around. Mm-hmm. And they're like following the tracks and like they're making these motions with their hands because they're not talking because they're being quiet. And at some point they'll stop and they'll look around and they'll see, and then they'll say to the camera, here's what happened here. This animal came from here and that animal came from there. And then this animal came from here and you're like, what? But they're also like bouncing around to try to, like they're acting like the animal to figure out what the animal is going to do. Sure. That's what you do to catch an animal is you be that animal. And I'm watching this. I'm thinking one, that's kind of cool. Like his leadership exercise, it's it's like advanced for me. Now for them, it's like, they started learning that like five years old. Right. You know, is watching someone who speaks a language natively. Like right. I learned French as an adult, and a five-year-old speaks better French than I ever will. Right, native so speaking. French. Yeah, I'm learning sustainability now. So someone who's immediate return hunter-gatherer, they're gonna they're gonna be more sustainable than I ever. They're gonna know more better than I ever will. In any case, in this situation, I'm I'm also thinking when we watch movies, we're being entertained, and it takes us to another place. And it's kind of cool to see like a giant face. You could look it right in the eye and they're not like, normally when you look someone in the eye, you, they like vulnerable. Yeah. But here you can look at something like 10 feet high and look them straight in the face. You can see all the nuance in, of their facial expressions and so forth. And it lets you empathize more that you, you know, we cry, even though we know we're looking at a screen. Hmm. I think that our ancestors had that all the time. Well, how so? What do you mean? Well, just from the hunting, they were, they were going into another world. Mm. What we want literature, one of the rules of literature, I mean, he's usually with other people, this is with animals, but I I suspect that they did it with people as well. That I think that they were, let's just stick with this hunting, that they were the, I think the experience of hunting was for them more than our experience of going to a play or an opera or to see drama or to see dance performance. I think we, well, I mean, our stuff can be, I think, for them, it was just automatic. They didn't have to pay to go to see it. They, they didn't have to, sure. um, they, it, I, the emotions that we have when we go to see Beethoven's Ninth mm-hmm. or KRS-One Live, and it's taking us to another place. That's not some, that we, we're not feeling emotions that our ancestors didn't, we're not capable right. of feeling. We can right. only feel things that our ancestors had. Right. Our system is their system. We haven't mm-hmm. evolved in this time. Right. So we are, I suspect that their, their emotional lives were probably at least as rich as ours, but probably more because they didn't have gatekeepers. They didn't have this dominance hierarchy that like you have to pay to go do this. They didn't, for us, anyone who thinks nature is something you have to fly to go see is getting less nature, not more. Right. Anyone who thinks that, um, if they're not in touch with themselves, that their self-awareness is so low that they can't tell where the guilt is coming from, their self-awareness is really low. That's and it, though. That's if you like read, if you read, um, 
Dawn of Everything talked about this guy, Candy Rock, who was, um, um, we're talking the 1600s. Uh, the Europeans are colonizing the US, uh, uh, what's going to be the US. And there's this guy, Candy Rock, who's like a leader of the Wendat nation or tribe of Indians. Um, mm -hmm. This is where Montreal is now. And this guy was, among Native Americans, he was pretty well spoken. Among Europeans, he was like top. Because in the culture here, without the hierarchies, if I wanted you to do something, I would have to talk to you. I would have to lead you. I would have to, I can't tell you what to do. Oh, right. In England and France and Spain at that time, it was pure hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Everyone knew from birth what their role was. And if someone above you told you to do something, you had to do it. Mm -hmm. And if you wanted someone below you to do something, they had to do it. Mm -hmm. Or they would be punished. Mm -hmm. So Europeans didn't learn leadership. They didn't learn emotional intelligence. They didn't learn how to relate with the, like conflict resolution. The conflict resolution was you go to jail off of his head. So this guy, Candy Ronk was just one representative, but he's the one that they quote at length because people wrote about him. So he went to tour Europe and all the intellectuals were like, this guy's amazing. Hmm. He was a regular guy, mm -hmm. you know, a bit above the ranks of the typical Native American, it sounds like, but that culture produced people who were what we would call great leaders. Right. But that was just everyone. Everyone participated right. in democracy all the time, not right. by voting once every four years, but by figuring out what do we do in this situation? Right. Well, and there was also a collective, I mean, there was a sense of collective well-being. Like what's good, we're connected. There's like the, the underlying assumptions are we're in this together. How can we as a group thrive? Or what do we need as a group? It wasn't this like hyper-individualism that is part of our culture is you know I, I, to me the material conditions that cause it of, of, of a dominance hierarchy where there's a resource that could be controlled with no with no alternative if the if the native americans lived with that if fundamentally if you can walk away if i order you around then a dominance hierarchy can't form mm -hmm. if but that wasn't the, that wasn't the situation in europe and that was a situation in north america i mean North America had lots of different situations. I don't want to say the whole continent, but generally there was less dominance hierarchy because what you needed to live was around. You mm -hmm. could, you, there was, you couldn't force someone to do stuff. Mm. You, you, the alternative to being, to doing what you're told was better. Whereas in right. Europe, it was worse. Right. And in Europe it was worse because in, in the Middle East, it was worse. And the Middle East, it was worse because that's where, when the Holocene happened, when the, the climate stabilized, not from climate change stuff, but just for some reason, more than 10,000 years ago, the climate was like really changing. Mm -hmm. And if you tried to grow, you could grow a plant and domesticate it, but within your lifetime, it would become not growable where you right. were. Right. So you couldn't form agriculture. It's not like people got smarter all of a sudden or figured something out that they couldn't f solve before. For reasons unknown, the climate stabilized 10,000 years ago, and that led to agriculture being possible. And the place in the world that was most possible was the Middle East, although the Yellow River and Central America, there are lots of other places where it happened. But the, um, and, and so dominance hierarchies formed there as well. Huh. But Europe, it wasn't Europeans. They were the indigenous. There were people living sustainably in Europe when agriculture really kicked in in the Fertile Crescent. Sure. But that's what created dominance hierarchy. And that culture spread 
because if you have a dominance hierarchy and you're at the top of it, if you're hurting people and then you let go, there's a reason there's witness protection programs when someone at the top of an organization turns against the organization, your life is at risk. Mm -hmm. So you have to, because you're unsustainable, you have to expand. And because you're at the top of dominance hierarchy, you have to maintain, do what it takes to maintain your hierarchy. So that's going to create empire. It's not evil people. It's not evil people create empires. Empires result from, from material conditions that force people to become evil. Or in the words of Ibram Kendi or um, um, Eric Williams, historians, racism didn't create slavery. Slavery right. created racism. Right. So we're at 90 minutes. We should probably wrap. All right. Yeah. Good session. Thanks. It's got serious, intense. Yeah. Why wouldn't it? What else are we going to talk about? The weather? Yeah, it, we could make Intense, time. but happy. I mean, but smiley. Um, I mean, I don't want to play fast and loose with like racism and slavery and, and, and colonialism and imperialism. Um, but I want to identify what's going on. I mean, these are chapters in my book. It's interesting too, just maybe this isn't, maybe like the tail end of this conversation isn't the place to bring it up. But as a graduate student at Howard University, like America's premier HBCU, it's fascinating to see this, um, like our social work program is founded in what they call the black perspective. It's like a central framework through which all of our classes are um, filtered. <laughs> and it mm -hmm. has, you know, six, um, it's not called tenets, but um, principles. Uh, including like diversity and um, internationalization and social justice and strength, like a strength-based perspective is part of, at least in Howard's framework, this, the, the black perspective. It's not like, yeah, I mean, as a white person at Howard, I feel like I have questions about it, but the idea is it's inclusive. It's not just applicable to black people or black practitioners. The idea is like, this is what the black perspective is. Use it who you know it's yours for the taking i feel like the environmental justice component of social work and of like most of our conversations in what tends to be a racial justice conversation is always sort of treated as like oh well i don't think we i don't think we have time for that <laughs> it's like sort of dismissed and what i think what i would love to talk at some point about is how environmental justice or like sustainability is integral integral i think i've been mispronouncing that word my whole life but is a is a fundamental um like foundation from which racial yeah. justice springs yes you let's make that the next time great <laughs> but i do want to i now i have to i have to bring up something from last time that about Spodek method and about leadership, mm. I'm putting you on the, I'm going to put you on the spot. So right. um, if people are watching this, it meant that, um, that Evelyn was large hearted enough that she allowed this to go on. <laughs> so I was talking last time about uh, big things. You have to go to where they are. Mm -hmm. When I, I think I'd talked about um, the Trump guy in a small town and how, when he said he was going to recycle plastic, did I say to him, well, actually recycling plastic doesn't really work that well. No, that's not where he was. Right. That's not, that's why intercept talk, it, that wouldn't help his slope. Right. Now, shortly thereafter in that conversation, 
I was talking about slaves and maybe owners. Oh, yeah. And you said, actually, the term is enslaved person, perhaps, or I forget how you put it. Well, yeah. And this is not like a, I don't know a discipline that's also fighting this fight. But personally, I feel like it's wrong. It's a wrong terminology. It's incorrect. A human person can't be a slave. It's they can be treated, they can be they can be trafficked, mm-hmm. but it yeah but it fund but calling someone a slave or a slave owner like um you're you're a human trafficker buddy, that's you're a human rights violator. Your your framework doesn't get to dictate how we identify. Not we. I was not enslaved, but like how human people identify. But I I don't I don't I don't know a lot of other people who have a problem with the terminology the way I do so. Now, I may have been right in all my knowledge of plastic pollution, plastic recycling not being effective and so forth. Let's say I was 100% right. Sure. Do you see how what you were saying to me was me saying to him, you know, plastic pollution, plastic recycling doesn't actually work. How me saying the term slave? Yeah. Were you saying that for me or for you? Were you going to where I was or were you where you were? Well, I was talking to you more as like a friend, like trying to teach you something that was important to me. I wasn't like trying to, yeah, I mean, sure, I can see how, I mean, I don't, I guess I don't know if that's something that is important to me to commu- to like communicate or share. I guess I'll have to figure out how and when and where to do it. Yeah. Um, it's not that I'm never going to talk to him about plastic recycling. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do it when he's on a roll, when he's in a space, when he's, you know, when his slope is, I'm not going to be like, like that. So if you look at the tone of what happened when we were speaking, suddenly I'm just like, oh, how do I deal with this? What? It's a sensitive topic. It's, 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 it's important, but suddenly it was all about you. And now I'm not saying it in, in regular conversation, going back and forth, that's, that's normal, but it was an example of like, Oh, well, all right. Lecture me. Give me the, all right. Tell me the lecture or I have to be as I was. I was like, well, I, it was really like, um, if that was in the middle of the Spodak method, you, it's going to be tough to lead that person. Now it wasn't, but it's not a matter of being right. It's being, a, it's a matter of being effective. Heard chef. So the, yeah, I, I'm, it may be that saying master and slave is all wrong, uh, even by my own standards. That time and place was ineffective. It was effective. It, it was, it, it, it felt to me like it was here, not where I was. Got it. Thanks for the feedback. I'm trying to read your expression. I know you pretty well, but I'm not reading hurt, annoyed, or I don't. We don't have to like dive into my emotions. Sorry, there's um, stuff about to happen in my life. We should probably sign off. Okay. Um, And so we. I haven't finished the story about the uh, the the Drew Gardens, but yeah, we're way over. I don't know we're way over, but people are listening are really into it. Yeah, right. You've made it this far. Stick with us. Just wait till we're live. 
yeah. you can jump in and great. tell me how slave terminology is <laughs> a-okay oh yeah we'll put that on the, on the agenda too timing got it growth edge okay um, all right um anything else to close with now we'll just close there and we'll start again again later all right good to see you Josh. bye everyone oh wait we uh